All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Intoxicated Podcast. My name is Matt Salis, and my guest today is my new friend, Michael Arnold. Hi, Michael. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Dude, I'm so good. Good. Hey, thanks for agreeing to talk with us today. Dude, my pleasure. I am um, becoming a bigger and bigger fan of yours. Um, number one, you're a recovery warrior badass, and I love to meet those people. And um, But most recently, you've become a book author, and I think that is really super cool. And um, the reason that you and I are sitting across from each other, Michael, is because I invited you and you said yes, but more importantly, the reason I invited you, um, I just kept running across you. Uh, I, I knew you in like three ways before I had connected the dots that those three people were the same person. Um, our good friend Simone, who was on a Intoxicated podcast episode a few months ago, um, she introduced me to you, and then... Um, the Alcoholic Next Door, who is a, a guy that I interact with on social media. Um, you did a Facebook Live together, right? Yeah. Like a couple months ago? Yeah. And I watched that because of his Facebook feed, and then I'm like, oh my God, this is the same person. <laughs> Excuse me. So um, so I said, well, if she's going to be a part of my life, I might as well get to know her because you're everywhere. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for, t- t- for talking to me today. Let's, let's start off. Just tell us a little bit about your story, your Let's go way back to the drinking part of your story, and then we'll talk about the recovery stuff. Um, you know, I'll just I'll keep it pretty sh- I'll keep it pretty short. But yeah, like you know, I I knew from the beginning that I drank differently from other people because I always hid my drinks, or I always had to drink more before I went out, um, and it was just a security thing for me. You know, it was like. I felt that I, I needed it. Like it was, you know, and, and everything was fine. You know, in, in high school, like I started drinking, you know, my first one was in middle school, middle school party, and then we all got caught. And then high school, it was on, you know, the occasional weekend, but I was an athlete. So we didn't party too much. It would be like homecoming prom. And then college came around and, you know, we started drinking all the time. Like, but it was okay because everybody else was doing it too. So I didn't really think there was a problem because we were all partying, going to class hungover, you know, doing it all over again. And then it's the American way. Yeah. It's very normal. So, you know, it's like, you know, thirsty Thursdays, you know, you go out Friday, Saturday, Sunday, bloody Marys were just like, yeah, it was, you know, so college, you know, and I got, you know, I managed to get through that. I don't know how, you know, but I, then I moved back to Telluride, um, which is a little ski resort town in Colorado. And, you know, I noticed that people, you know, it was just like a culture that, you know, you're in a tourist ski town, ski bum lifestyle, you work hard, you play hard. And so I, but what I noticed about me is that, you know, when we would be out like drinking before we went skiing on a powder day, or we'd go out late night concerts, you know, when people cut it off, like, I couldn't cut it off. Like, I secretly, they would be done. I would be doing that extra line of low. I would be drinking that extra beer. Or before we went out, like, I would pack that extra hand, I mean, that extra, not handle, well, I couldn't pack handle in a backpack, but those extra flasks. And, you know, I knew that there was something not right about it, but I just, you know, like, nobody noticed, so I just kept doing it until it got to the point where I uh, was with a boyfriend that I knew was an alcoholic. Like, I put the light on him and I saw how he drank, so he made me feel normal. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, was, when you first started, like, like you would drink to get ready to go out, and you knew that your friends maybe weren't doing that or the extra flask, mm-hmm. did it, because that's similar to my story, did it ever make you feel 
almost like you were the queen of the party? Like, before you realized it was a problem, were you ever like, ah, I can handle more than these guys Oh, can. totally. I, you know, like, I was like... I was like, dude, like they don't drink it as enough. Like, yeah. so I, I, so it's like, so it's like, if I'm gonna keep, have a good time like they are, I have to like make up for it in like in silence, and so that's what I did. Wow. So you, uh, your boyfriend was an alcoholic. Yeah. And you could see that. I mean, but you couldn't not. see it in yourself. No, I was like, what is wrong with this guy? Huh. Like he was drinking in the mornings. He would hide. I, I started seeing empty, empty plastic vodka bottles everywhere, and I'm like, "What the?" You know. And I wasn't quite there yet. I wasn't doing that. I wasn't hiding anything yet. But then it's like because he was doing it, and then I just started drinking more. So I thought it was okay. Um, and then we got engaged. And when we got engaged, is when it's like that's when the tipping point happened. Like the last two years of my addiction, I just started drinking with him at home we isolated I, I couldn't be in public because if I was in public then people would know and I didn't want people to know and so if I was in public then I would make sure to do copious amounts of blow before I went out so I could look okay even though I was completely drunk and messed up on blow um, it was a vicious vicious cycle the last two years and then I just couldn't do it anymore so was there was there like a tipping point where you went like, because you were, by the end, you were maintenance drinking. Like, you'd mm-hmm. wake up in the middle of the night and drink a slug of whiskey because otherwise you couldn't get through the night, right? Oh, yeah. But, but I mean, you don't just go from partying to, to the point where it's got to be in your system all the time. Was there, I mean, I know that that's gradual. I understand that. But was there a time when you went, oh, shit, I have to drink or I can't sleep through the night? You know, it was, it was honestly, like, I remember, I, I was thinking about a lot of this, too, as I was writing my book, but... It was when I was when I played rec league soccer because softball you could drink all the time. Sure, you know, but soccer like I actually had to like run and like be active. But it's when I was playing rec league soccer towards the end of my drinking, I was like, you know, I was filling up. I was drinking whiskey while playing soccer. Wow! Because I so it was like in your water bottle or something. It was in a flask, and like no one on the team even really noticed or cared, or they never said anything. So like on timeouts or halftime, I'd be slugging whiskey. Because I'd be running and I would be getting dehydrated, I start to get shaky, and I had to, and it's like I had to, to drink it, and that's when I knew I was like, Michael, this isn't normal. Yeah. But I didn't know what to do about it. Like I didn't know what to do. When I was playing in an adult soccer league, an indoor league, um, we there was a bar attached to the place where we played, and after the games, we would go and have beers. And I'll never forget after one of the games one night. It's me and like five or six teammates, and we had just got a pitcher of beer. And somebody from another team comes out and says, hey, we are short like a bunch of guys for our game. Would you guys come and play? And we had all had like half a beer at that point. So all the guys are like, yeah, we're tired. But yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll come and help out your team. And I play goalie. So they're like, yeah, will you play goalie? And I'm like, sure. And the reason I was excited to play goalie is because the goalie keeps a water bottle in his goal. And I took that pitcher of beer, and I poured three quarters of it into this huge water bottle I had. <laughs> And the guys were all laughing, like, ah, he gets to drink through the game, you know. But for me, it was like, I started. I am not stopping now. Like, I would rather not play than not be able to have this with me. But if I get to play goalie, I'll take it with me. Right, And yeah. they, they thought it was funny, but I knew, like, man, this isn't, there's nothing okay about this. No. But, so, I, I've been there. I've been there, absolutely. <laughs> so, so what made you get sober? What, like, what happened? Was there a traumatic experience, or did you just finally say, enough is enough? Oh, I had traumatic experiences, you know, like it was because my family wanted me to get sober. Like they begged me to get sober, Matt. And 
So I tried. So when you say family, not your fiance, but your not my fiance, your parents and your sister, right? Your sisters, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, they wanted me. They're like Michael, like you got to do something about this. And I was like, fine. So I remember, like, I tried AA. My first AA meeting I went to was on Valentine's Day, and it was a Sunday, and I was like, I was not going for me, Matt. I'm like, I just want them to get off my back, you know? And so I went to AA. My fiancé was supportive. He never, you know, but he kept drinking, which was hard because it's like he was like, this is on you. This is not my, me. So yeah. you do, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Um, and so I lasted 37 days. Like, I couldn't believe it, but it was purely on the will of just trying to get my family off my back. And I just wasn't ready. I was like, sure. this was in the, this was February, March of 2015 before I ended up in rehab that, that, that December. But, uh, afterwards, like after I went back out, like I came home after a meeting and I was just like, fuck this. And I just grabbed the handle from my, from my significant other because we just didn't even use glasses anymore. Like, what's the point? We're just drinking from the handle, mm. um, or the bottle, you know, but, yeah, yeah. uh, and I just went back drinking. I was like, I got this. I was like, I totally got this. Like, I'm not an alcoholic and it just got worse. Like it, like I, I cut my family off. I didn't want to talk to them. And then my sister's wedding was that, no was that November, my older sister. And they were like, Michael, like, are you good? Like, will you make it? And so that was my drive too. I was like, I, I need to get to my sister's wedding. And I knew I couldn't go in the capacity I was at, Matt, you know, because I was just, I was a mess. I was drinking around the clock. So I was like, okay. I was like, I'm just going to start slowly weaning myself off. And so I tried to slowly wean myself off as we were driving from Telluride to Chicago. We wanted to make a road trip of it so I could see other family along the way. But I cut the liquor out too fast because my body was dependent on it and I cut it out too fast and so I had a seizure on the way to the wedding and I flatlined in the ambulance going to the hospital in Barrington Colorado and the doctors and my family they're like you're too sick to go and so I did I missed my older sister's wedding and the first thing I did when I got out of there was I went to the liquor store because that's what you do when you're an alcoholic. You're insane. I'm insane. And I got, you know, I just started drinking for about another month. And then I realized in December, like, I could feel my body dying. I don't know if you've had that experience as an alcoholic. But, like, I just, my heart was, like, pittering my body. Like, I couldn't walk. I was just, I was in destitute. And I just had a, a spiritual experience, um, you know, carrying my last bottle up the stairs. And I just finally, like, I fell to the floor. And I was like... You know, are you going to die or are you going to fucking live, Michael? Yeah. And I just, I knew right then and there, Matt, I was like, I'm so done, like, living but dying. I'm so fucking done. And I called my dad and I was like, get me out of here. And, like, I've never looked back. And your dad took you to rehab, right? Yep. And that was a really, I've, I've read about it, that was a really kind of emotional thing with you and your dad right oh yeah like the biggest thing he was on the phone with doctors like how do i get her there and they're like don't don't let her not drink yeah. like she has to drink until she gets medical supervision so my dad's like handing me this bottle of evan williams and i'm just drinking the whole way so that i can you know survive to get to rehab it was it was wild but it was necessary and he was just he was there for me and then in rehab maybe because of the spiritual experience you talked about mm -hmm. And the determination you talked about. But you really felt the drive, like, this is a life-saving opportunity. I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to listen to what they have to say. I'm going to do the work. Um, and I'm going to get better. And I've heard you describe that one of the hard parts about that is roughly maybe half of the people that you're in rehab with 
aren't treating it that way. They aren't taking it seriously. They're making jokes. They're making it difficult to get well. And uh, that was really frustrating. Am I describing that right? Dude, yeah, Matt. It was like, because I knew what was at stake. Like, I knew. And I was like, I will be damned if I go back to this life that I wasn't even living. And so it was hard sometimes to be around these other women that were just giggling and making rude remarks about our texts or our counselors and, you know, like complaining about the exercises or the homework we had to do because they just weren't ready and they didn't, they couldn't see. And I was like, I'm ready. Like, like I'm going to die if I don't get this. Like, do you not understand this? You know, and I think what what really was frustrating for me is when I would meet these these women's family members who would come up and visit, and they were taking out second loans on their home, you know, pulling money out of their retirement to get their family members sober, and they just didn't care. And that honestly gave me more motivation. I was like, I am not going to be that person. So they thought just by by virtue of showing up at rehab. Well, if you go to rehab, you get fixed. I don't have to yeah. actually do anything while I'm there. Yeah. I'm just gonna get fixed by being there. Yeah, you know, they just were like, oh, you know what, like, I'm just going to dry out for, like, 30 days, you know, and I'll figure it out. Like, I'll be better. Like, I'm going to get the tools I need to know how to drink or how to manage. Yeah. You know, like, I don't need, like, it's not the problem of, like, drinking too much. It's, like, knowing how to. Yeah. And I'm like, that is not, like, that's not it. No, we all go through that stage, right, where we're setting rules for ourselves and we're trying to moderate. I mean, I don't know an alcoholic that doesn't try moderation before he tries to quit or before he... Um, making the decision to quit. So we've all been through that. But I think it's funny when you talk to people who aren't in recovery and don't aren't close enough to it to understand, and they hear you say, you know, that there's a lot of work involved in recovery, they don't really get that. But you've got to change your whole life. Like you've got to, you've got to say that this thing that was a huge part of my existence, my personality, who I was, that's not there anymore. And if you just try to cut that out without filling it with something else, you're hosed, you'll go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, I think that's really cool that you you embraced it so much. Um, coming out of recovery, tell me a little bit about the relationship with your family, your sisters and your parents, because I know how important they are to you mm-hmm. and how much they wanted, they were worried about you. you. You've talked about how you daily would text them just so that they would know you were alive when you were still drinking, right? Oh, yeah. Nothing substantive, and it wasn't for them either. They didn't really want to hear your story, and you nope. didn't want to tell it. They just wanted to know you were alive today. Yep. <laughs> so the the amount that they loved and cared about you but felt helpless before recovery, when you came out of rehab, um, talk about the relationship. Was it just magically changed, or was there work to be done? Dude, I wish it was magically yeah, changed, no right? Like, we all, like, we're like, oh, like, I got better, so you guys are fine. We're fine, right? Yeah. Like, it's all good. And that's what I wanted, but I knew I was kidding myself. And when I would sit down and have conversations with my family members, I, uh, you know, time is one thing that is not on my side in my recovery. It's something that, you know, it's it's like my relationships, even, you know, three years and change into my sobriety, you know, it takes time. Like, Mm -hmm. they still have moments like, you know, like, like, like she could go out like she could you know like because you know like it's on me but like that like those those worries and those things that happen to them you know the trauma that I put them through it's always going to be there you know but all they can do is just say hey like you know if Michael's sober today we're grateful today you know I've been able to gain a lot of that trust back you know sometimes like it's not there and do I get frustrated yeah like I'm like what the fuck like why don't you trust me and then I have to realize Michael like look what you did you know, like, it's not just going to be that easy. And so for me, it's like, you know, just understanding, hey, like, all I can do every single day is 
just do the work, stay sober, you know, and for me, for them, it's about them, like, they're like, Michael, I don't want to hear sorry. They're like, do not say you're sorry. Show us that you're sorry. And so it's just through like that, it's just through the action every single day that my relationships get better, you know, but if I'm not in action, like, it's like I'm either progressing in action or I'm regressing and I choose to progress. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And um, our listeners and my readers um, know that I um, didn't go through AA. That's not, I found recovery in a different way. But your rehab was a 12-step based rehab and you are very much a proponent of AA. And um, and I think it's great. I think it's great what it's done for you. What, what about when you got to the amends portion of the 12 steps for AA and you went, is that when your family said, I don't want to hear it. I mm-hmm. just want to see you. Yeah. live a better life don't don't sit here and talk to me about your amends Is oh that yeah kind of what it was oh yeah like they they're like I don't want to hear sorry and that's how it was for a lot of my amends that I had to make um you know some people didn't accept my apology or they you know they didn't they didn't understand they still don't because they just don't people that aren't close to it like you said earlier Matt that aren't close to the disease and don't understand alcoholism like some of them still thought it was my choice like they still thought it was my choice to ruin their lives or ruin their businesses or do those things and that you know, like I went and got better and, you know, like everything's fine. Like they just don't get it. And and I, and that's the thing. It's like, I can't worry about that. Like all I can worry about is that I know in my heart and of hearts that like, I am very sorry. And all I can do again, it's, it's about those living amends, just showing them that, I, you know, like I am a changed person. Like I can't talk about it. I can be about it. And I choose to be about it. I think it's interesting. You and I um, share a lot of philosophies about, what needs to change to make the recovery community or, or make people that haven't reached the recovery stage yet find the light. Um, and one of the things that you and I share in common is a, is the belief that the stigma needs to go away. We need to get rid of the stigma associated with alcoholism. And um, one of the ways that we, uh, we, we've got to address the blame that that people want to assess. Now, you mentioned ruining people's businesses or hurting people in, in your personal life. Those people are angry, and justifiably so. What, what we did made them angry. But what, what we have to educate people, I guess, or, or share our stories so that people will learn, is that um, taking that anger and then looking for someone to blame, that's kind of a misplaced blame because... Um, we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to behave that way. We didn't want to act that way. We were sick. And so when that when that blame comes out of people, it just perpetuates this stigma, and we've got this kind of never-ending cycle of how are sick people going to get well if they're ashamed mm-hmm. and they're, they're blamed for these actions that the disease caused. Um, talk a little bit about, if you will, how your i mean i i describe you and i'm not joking around when i say this as you know a recovery warrior badass you've gone from getting healthy yourself and look at recovery is a lifetime process you and i both understand that but you're not just working on your own recovery now like this is what you do you in your life try to help people um recover and get healthier and stay connected so talk a little bit about how you went from i'm in this this rehab and i'm going to a meetings to uh, this is what I'm going to do now. You know, like, I just knew, Matt, like, when I got sober, I was like, I just want to help people. You know, and I've always been a very people person. I, You know, I used to coach high school basketball for girls for years. I used to, I've always been in that, 
just you know mentor um you know uh, model and so i was just like i i want people so badly to have what i have because i was i knew how bad my life was and i was like you know like i did not get sober to live a small life like you know big man upstairs like i refer to him as god and you know some people refer to him as higher power or if you, even if you're not spiritual that's cool too but like i fully believe that god did not get me sober to live a small life and to, to live it in secrecy and i was like i want to just help people so i looked around at different certifications you know i'd already been to college but i was like i, I need something more i found a life coach and health coach certification and then a recovery coach certification and I was like and then from that point on like it was like Michael Arnold coaching evolved you know Michael Arnold coaching makeshift happen and I did use the tagline makeshift happen because we're always shifting we're always like moving the needle and I was like I just want people to see that it's okay like nobody is perfect you know, which then led me into now just being able to work for Harmony where I went to rehab, you know, working with the alumni. And it's about the fact that I want to be able to show people what kind of ripple effect that they can have and be able to show them they can have a really great ripple effect, even if they've been in a really like awful place. So you do one-on-one life coaching, one-on-one recovery coaching. Mm-hmm. Then you go back to the place where you went through rehab and you take over their alumni relations process and you make all these connections there so you're like just deep as you can get in the recovery community oh, yeah, yeah. but michael that's not enough for you you decide i gotta write a book too <laughs> you gotta write a book and not only did you have to write a book but i so i didn't get to know you till the book was just about well we didn't know each other but i knew of you when the book was about to be released so i didn't know the backstory then but you wrote a book and published it with three other people with two other people there were three of you total in nine months. In nine months. That's crazy. <laughs> I just think that's amazing. So so tell us about the book. Tell us a little bit about that. Dude, so the book is called Drowning in Addiction, Sink or Swim. And we, me and my two co-authors, we all met through a coaching conference. Um, I was up on stage in front of 800 people sharing my story. And that's how Scott, one of my co-authors, found me and was like, I just he loved my message because it reminded him of his father and then Andrea she does a podcast too and she was like you need to be on my podcast and share this so we all got connected through being in recovery and wanting to coach people and help this world be a better place I know that sounds really cheesy but it's fucking true and so we met each other in April which was literally a year ago um, in April of 27 of 2018 about two months later, Scott, we're all like on a messenger together just talking about recovery and coaching. And he goes, do you guys want to write a book? And we're like, fuck yeah, we want to write a book. <laughs> so we literally got our brains together in July of 2018, committed, because all of us had been thinking about this subconsciously. Like we all wanted to write a book. We're like, let's get it done together because it's more powerful to have several different stories together. And what was powerful about this book, Matt, is that you have two people that are in recovery, which is me and Andrea. We got sober very different ways. So you have two two very different ways of getting sober. Then we have Scott, who is the product of an alcoholic father. His father died of the disease. So he offers the family and the compassionate side of that. So you have three different, very different perspectives so that our book is not just for one person. It's literally for every single person. Like, we are like, addiction doesn't discriminate. Recovery doesn't discriminate. We want everybody to be able to read this and understand that it doesn't matter how you get sober. Just pick a path and go for it. 
you know, and so we share our stories very intimately, very viscerally, and then we also share stories from other people so that when people read this book, they can relate. And we don't, like you've, like, you've probably read some of it too, like, we don't sugarcoat. Because here's the thing, like, if we sugarcoat, we are, dis- it's a disservice. And we don't want to be a disservice to this community. And so we just, we took the swear words out because we are like, we don't want to swear. Um, but we had a lot of swear words um, because that's just us. But we took the swear words out so that, you know, like people, there there was no excuse to not be able to have this book everywhere. For And somebody is going to get something out of this book, whether you're in recovery or not. Even if it's just, like I said, awareness and knowledge. Well, I'm about two thirds of the way through it so far. And I just love the stories. I mean, all three of them. Um, I'll get kind of transfixed. And when you when you shift from your story to Andrea's story, um, I have to, like, reset for a second. I'm like, okay, wait, wait, wait. We're done with Michael now. We're going on to it. But it's it's like reading three books at a time. It's like, but that's a great thing. I, I really, the stories are just locking me in. I really enjoy it. One of the things that you talk about that I think is most fascinating coming specifically from you because you did recover through AA and you are an AA proponent is the fact that you believe that um, anonymity is, is a problem. You believe that um, because you tell your story, it's going to help somebody else. And because that person tells their story, it'll help somebody else. And when we keep the stories private, nobody gets helped. Um, can you talk just a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, dude. This is like, this is where, like, I get fired up. Like, you get more fired get, up I than get you so already are? I fired up. Like, because I love AA. And for everybody that listens to this, like, and I respect the anonymity. Like, I will, I will never, ever break anybody's anonymity because I, I do get how it does serve you to a degree. And this is where the Recover Out Loud is, is the fact that, you know, if you are only going to a church basement drinking really poopy coffee, the coffee's not that great, and cookies, eating a ton of cookies, and not like being out in the world talking about it like what is that doing for you what is that doing for your quality of life really and what is that doing for the person that needs to hear your story and I always am brought back to the point of the simple fact that somebody if for you to get help for most people to get help they're usually talking to somebody in recovery and guess what that person broke their anonymity to help you so why are you going to get sober and have this beautiful gift? Like, you're already a badass for owning something that has been hurting you and other people. Like, why are you going to hide that? And so, like, I recover out loud because, like, I want to be that person that I needed when I was in my addiction. And so I tell people, hey, like, you don't have to be like me in 10x you're recovering out loud. Like, you don't have to do that. But if you're in the rooms and you're remaining anonymous, like, just take that first step of, like, if you hear a family friend or a coworker, pull them aside and be like, you know what, hey, like, I know something about that. Like, let me talk to you later. It can be just one person, but really ask yourself, like, what are you really doing for you and for, like, really for you if you're going to, like, live in secrecy? Yeah, absolutely. It's a two-way street. We help others, but we help ourselves by just keeping on going. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Michael Arnold, you... You said earlier that God didn't get you sober, didn't get you healthy so that you could live a quiet life. That is never anything any of us need to worry about. You live in a quiet, you live in a quiet life. You are a large presence, and I just think it's wonderful. I love all the work you're doing. I love following your story, and I'm loving reading your book. Um, I think of the book as Sink or Swim, but there's more to the title. Give me the first part. Drowning in Addiction. Drowning in Addiction, Sink or Swim. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Michael, thanks for joining us on the Intoxicated Podcast today. Dude, thanks. All right, be talking to you.